This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. I am solo today. Jessica will be back next week. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast. Andrew Seidel is vice president of strategic communications for Americans United for Separation of Church and State and the author of The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. He's written and spoken extensively about these issues in a variety of online and print publications and on several news shows. On a personal note, he is someone I routinely look to for guidance on where our shared dystopia is heading because he doesn't hold back on telling the truth, he doesn't mince words, and unlike a lot of legal pundits on cable news shows, he has the distinction of being right all the damn time when he tells us how extreme this current court is. His latest book out this month is called American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. Andrew, thank you for joining me. Your new book really summarizes a lot of the big religious cases in front of the Supreme Court over the past few years when it comes to uh, church-state separation. It explains what they were about and what the court did in plain English, and it analyzes what all of that means I was actually stunned to see that, you know, despite the length of the book and the substance inside of it, and I know you know what I'm going to ask here, you didn't even touch on what the court did in its most recent term because books have deadlines. And I know you have an online supplement to the book, uh, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. But I do wonder, maybe that's unnecessary because your point in the book is to show how the court has weaponized religion, and that has been clear long before this most recent term. So I guess my first question is, after you turned in the draft of this book, how often did you like shake your fist at the sky and think like, no, I need it back. There's more to say. I mean, it, it wasn't even just watching the court do so much damage. It was like every week we were getting new revelations about the crusade and the crusaders and this push to weaponize religious freedom. Uh, but, you know, I, I mean, I knew these cases were coming, right? Like, and if you read the, the text, even it was finalized in May, uh, even though we knew this was all going to happen and it was very predictable. Uh, and, that, and then that's because there is this really well-funded, powerful network of Christian nationalist organizations and judges that are working to weaponize the First Amendment, right? They're working to turn the protection of religious freedom that is enjoyed by all of us into a weapon of Christian privilege for the few. And, you know, this is a crusade that has been remorselessly waged for about a decade, even though the groundwork was laid before that. Uh, So none of what I saw this term from the court was a surprise. And it all falls right into line with this crusade to weaponize religious freedom. So if the court continues at the pace and the way they've gone about handling these cases, what are the biggest church-state separation barriers uh, that you think are going to fall in the near future? What are the big, not just the big cases, but the big uh, ideas that you're worried we're about to lose? I mean, one of the big things that that I'm really worried about is our public schools. I mean, there is an all-out assault on our public schools right now. And, you know, I I guess maybe people don't realize that a lot of the the crusade is 
the religious freedom cases that the Crusaders are bringing, right, they're superficially about uh, like Christian crosses and veterans or about playgrounds or about private school vouchers or bakeries and gay weddings. But but they don't seem like religious cases. They don't. And, and they're not really about religious freedom or any of those other things. What they're really about is religious privilege, like often literally privileging religion over non-religion. Christianity over other religions, and, and to be explicit about it, the right kind of conservative Christian over every other Christian, right? For them, re- religious freedom is, is their weapon to reclaim and entrench their lost or, or waning uh, status as the dominant caste in America. And, and that really is the goal of every one of the cases that they are trying to bring, to use religious freedom to elevate conservative Christianity above the law, to exempt conservative Christians from the law while disfavoring non-religious and non-Christian citizens who are then required to follow the law. So what they're looking for is a weapon to codify their privilege and supremacy. And is it just the makeup of the Supreme Court that gives them the ability to weaponize it like this? Because, I mean, the the lower courts, the appellate courts, they've also been stacked by right-wing judges for a long time, but it seems like things are happening faster and at a larger level, like bigger cases, more uh, influential cases than ever before. Is that simply the result of Amy Coney Barrett getting on the court? Um, it's a good question, and that really is a big part of it. Um, I mean, this was going to happen anyway. The, cru- the crusade was already in the works. What happened with Amy Coney Barrett taking the place of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the speed of change. Basically, the brakes are, are gone and off now. Uh, because before she was on the court, John Roberts... A very deeply conservative man, an ideologue, um, and and very much a crusader in favor of weaponizing religious freedom, as as the book shows. Um, Hardly a moderate. De- I mean, by no stretch of the imagination is he a moderate or is he a friend to liberals. But he understood that the legitimacy of the Supreme Court depended on slow incremental change. So he wanted all of the same conservative change that we're seeing happen now. He just wanted to do it more slowly to preserve those victories for the future. Because right now we are seeing a massive backlash against the court. Because again, you know, this is a court that is drunk on power. The, I mean, the gloves are off, the brakes are off. The, there is no restraint whatsoever. And that is, they are seeing blowback as a result of that. And what Roberts wanted to do was the same exact thing, just more slowly to preserve those victories. So he would have given the same weapon of religious freedom. In fact, that was one of the places he was changing things more quickly uh, than some other areas. Um, he would have given that that trump card, that, that silver bullet, that golden ticket, choose whatever metaphor you want, that would have allowed religious freedom to trump everybody else's rights and other people's rights. Uh, he just wanted to do it like a little bit more slowly to preserve those victories into the future. So Amy Coney Barrett being put on the court does make a huge difference. Uh, and 
the the lower courts are of course crucially important, but really when it comes to the First Amendment and what that means, you know, the buck kind of stops with the Supreme Court. You talk a lot in the book about the Federalist Society and their influence on the courts. Uh, for the people who are not familiar with this group, can you tell us a little bit about who they are and what they do? And one question I have about them is, ostensibly, that is not a religious organization, and yet it's that group that seems to be responsible for all this religious change we're seeing. So, like, why is that kind of the primary focus of so much of what they seem to be doing? Well, I'll answer that second part first. And I think the second part is because religious freedom really can be that silver bullet, right? Because it is a right enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution. If you can pervert its meaning, if you can weaponize that protection, right? If you can turn what was this, this shield into a sword is the metaphor that we like to use, then you really can cut across so many of the other rules and laws and norms that exist. Um, That's why they were targeting the First Amendment. Now, the Federalist Society itself is a conservative group of lawyers. It started uh, with a group of law students that got together and really sought political and then eventually and really judicial power. And the reason that they targeted religion in the end, especially with their judicial nominees, is because of Leonard Leo. And Leonard Leo is universally recognized as the man who orchestrated the hostile takeover of the Supreme Court. Uh, There's, I have in the book, uh, a former employee of Leo's who described his mission as this. He said, uh, Leo figured out 20 years ago that conservatives had lost the culture war. Abortion, gay rights, contraception. Uh, Conservatives didn't have a chance if public opinion prevailed. So they needed to stack the courts. And, And this is the overall point that I'm trying to make in the book is that the fight to weaponize religious freedom is a blowback against the waning demographic power of the conservative, white, Christian, heteronormative male majority, right? That that power has been slowly on the wane, and they are seeking to reclaim and recodify that power by capturing the federal judiciary. So And so uh, in practice, what does that mean? You you went to law school. If you're in law school and if you happened to have the same passion that you do for church-state separation, but you were hell-bent on the other side of the issue, what would that have meant for you? Like, what would the Federalist Society have done if a young conservative version of Andrew <laughs> happened to be in law school and pushing on the uh, for the other side of all these issues? Such a good question. And it, it would have meant me being dialed in to a network of money and power that would have elevated my career at every single step along the way. They're tapping people really early for important and powerful positions and then using this network to lift them up through the ranks. Uh, and, and, you know, so Leo's job was described uh, for judicial nominees here as the monitor of the various nominees' ideological purity, right? So uh, this is a group um, that was single-minded because Leo was single-minded. Um, and to give you an idea of the influence they've had, um, so uh, Chief Justice John Roberts and Sam Alito were both 
nominated in 2005, both are members or were members of Leo's Federalist Society, and Leo played a crucial role in both of their partisan nominations. Clarence Thomas is a longtime friend of Leo's and a member of the Federalist Society, too. Um, All told, um, Leo is responsible for the confirmation of Roberts, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Uh, all of whom were members of the Federalist Society. So that's that's six total votes on the Supreme Court when you throw in his friendship with Thomas and his membership in the society. And six votes on the Supreme Court, and Leo chose five of them for their ideology, right? For a crusader So he is ideology. the Supreme Court. He is. He is the court. He is. Um, I, it seems like in a lot of ways he's like an NBA scout just kind of staking out junior highs to see which which of these kids is going to make it because I could start working with them right now. And by the time they're in college, like I'm already ready for the draft. I mean, I got them ready to go. Yeah. And you've got these these networks of groups that will give them experience and then shuffle them to to another group to give them experience. They'll get judicial clerkships with the conservative judges. Uh, and now building with, up their resume. Yeah. And now with, you know, six of the members of the U.S. Supreme Court, they'll be able to get these these clerkships. And, you know, if you you come out of a Supreme Court clerkship and, and you take a, a job with a, a law firm, you know, one of these white shoe law firms, you know, you're, you're looking at a six figure signing bonus just because you've clerked for a Supreme Court justice. Uh, I mean, so it, it makes a very big difference. And they've built this network, this, this financial and power network, um, for, for decades. And I feel like this is a softball question for you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. (laughs) Why isn't there a liberal version of the same group? Uh, it's, it's a really good question. Um, there are certainly groups that are looking at doing this. Um, the American Constitution Society is a big pushback against the Federalist Society. Uh, the group that I currently work for, Americans United for Separation of Church and State, is working on building some direct responses to these. So it's building power and long-term influence um, in a less sinister, more open manner. Um, and I think a big part of the reason is that the law has has been on our side and we have believed and treated the courts as these arbiters of truth and justice. But, but if you want to understand what is happening right now with religion and law, with our Supreme Court – First of all, you have to read American Crusade, my book. But you also you also have to unshackle your mind from the belief that the Supreme Court is an impartial arbiter of truth and justice. The Supreme Court depends on people believing that myth, right? And like like McConnell and Trump and Leo cheated and stole and packed the courts to put their collaborators in place, right? They didn't do that because they just wanted their people who would administer justice even-handedly. They chose people who would not do just that. We'll be right back with the interview in just a moment, but first, a shout-out to our sponsor. I do a lot of research and writing from public spaces, using public Wi-Fi, and sometimes I'm blocked from watching news clips or videos from other countries. Other times, I don't want anyone to know how I'm researching them. Incognito mode just isn't enough sometimes, since internet service providers can still see every single website I've visited. That's why, even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. 
ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure services so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. Most of the time, I don't even know it's there. It just runs in the background. It's compatible with all my devices, and it encrypts my data. So if you think data is your business, use the VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit our exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash friendlyatheist to get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash friendlyatheist. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. You mentioned this in the book. I've heard other uh, legal scholars I respect mention this too, but if we have this idea that the Supreme Court is uh, on the side of civil rights and decency, it's really because of what they did over the span of like a 20-year period yeah. in the 50s, 60s with or under uh, Warren. Um, but that's not the norm. Usually, uh, it seems from your book, usually the history of the Supreme Court has been to do the sort of things we see them doing now, which is pushing a certain ideal, uh, a certain mindset that hurts more Americans than it helps, it seems. That's absolutely right. And it's it's part of the myth. And I think, I think lawyers are more prone to this. I think we learned this in law school, but I, I think we're also taught this in the public schools around the country. We're, we're taught to revere the Supreme Court as this body that, you know, defended civil rights and, uh, you know, that decided Brown versus Board of Education um, and Gideon versus Wainwright, which is the case that says, you know, you get to have counsel if, if you're, uh, you know, accused of a crime. And we, we think of it as this, this bastion of civil rights. And, and historically, that is just not true. Um, you look at the history of the Supreme Court and by and large, it is a deeply conservative and retrogressive body. Um, and I think that's a hard truth for a lot of Americans to realize, um, especially I think paradoxically a, a lot of lawyers, I, you know, I, I've been talking a lot more about this lately and I tend to notice that it's the, it's the, the lawyers who are the most opposed to looking at any kind of Supreme Court reform. And I think it's because we have really been <laughs> drinking that Kool-Aid more than anybody else. You know, that's what we're given in law school. Um, is there one, I mean, we speak about these five or six justices, the Federalist Society justices, as almost this core block yeah. uh, for uh, against religious freedom as it ought to be applied. Is there one justice whose presence is like ultra crusade or are they basically six bodies and they're all interchangeable? That's a, that's a very hard question. I think, I think uh, John Roberts is a lot more involved in the crusade than people realize, especially given some of his favorable treatment in the media, you know, given his, uh, some of his, what the media would label more liberal, wrongly label more liberal votes uh, in certain cases. Um, I, I do think that Sam Alito and, and Clarence Thomas are particularly um, involved in the crusade, and that's because they've been on the court pushing these ideas for you know, two decades or more, uh, but have not had the votes and now they mm. do, and they're really excited about that. They've been 
they've been chomping at the bit and, and chafing at the slowness of their ability to enact change. Uh, and, and now they are, they are free from that. And, you know, they still have, they still write with the, the bitterness of ideologues who can't force their views on an entire country, um, but actually have that power now. Uh, so that they're, they're problematic. But I mean, I, I certainly think that all of them are. And I, in the in the beginning of American Crusade, I explain and I really list the the pedigree and you know, go back and look at some of the things that that these people have written. You know, like we have John Roberts's memos from the time when he was in the White House talking about uh, we have a long fight before us before we can get public prayer or prayer back into public schools. Um, you know, and we fight. Not the words of a moderate. No. And, you know, I mean, that those are the words of a crusader. Right. That, I mean, that, mm-hmm. that is the language of a crusader. We fight prayer in schools. Right. And, and then you get the coach, uh, the case of uh, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, this term where you have a coach imposing his religion on other people's children and the Supreme Court rubber stamping that. And, you know, I mean, it took Roberts 40 years, but he got there in the end. This is. I know you read these stories about like Amy Coney Barrett. I've seen a lot of these, a couple of these stories where they shine a light on the religious practices of the faith, Mm -hmm. the the circle of friends, that group she was part of. And honestly, I always feel a little weird about those articles every time I read them because it talks about like the way they treat women or the uh, idea. I, what an ideal woman in that situation ought to be doing as a homemaker or whatever, very retrograde patriarchal views. But every time I read those articles, I always feel weird because one, she's still going to be on the court no matter what. And two, her beliefs aren't that weird compared to like the Catholics on the court. We're just used to the Catholic views, I guess. I mean, is there any value to talking about her faith as if it's something weird, or do you find that to be a distraction from something bigger? I see, I see people's, and first of all, I do, I do touch on this in American crusade. You know, to me, the distinction is that we have Barrett on the record saying that judges, personal religious views should trump their oath of office. And that is, is the interplay that the Senate should have been questioning her about when she was nominated for the Seventh Circuit and when she was nominated again for the Supreme Court, right? Because if you are explicitly saying your personal religious beliefs trump your oath of office, then the Senate actually has a duty to examine you about why (laughs) that might be the case. Because then you're talking about abusing your power to impose your personal religion on everybody else, which is exactly by the way, what is happening. Um, you know, I, I think the senators did a um, remarkably inelegant job when it came to that. You know, you have Diane uh, Feinstein's the dogma lives loudly within you comment, which is right, but not a great way to question somebody. And obviously the other side was going to turn around and, and cry foul there. Um, I mean, t- so we do have an obligation to explore what her faith is, what she might believe, because it, she's said herself it may have an impact on how I decide cases. Exactly, because she made it an issue, right? She is the one who wrote about um, what a Catholic judge must do when presented with a question of abortion. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and we, we have that in black and white, and then we have her later on, of course, voting in the Dobbs case in a way that her Catholicism dictates and not the way that the law or our 
decades of history and precedent dictate. Uh, so, I mean, I, th- I think those are absolutely relevant questions, and I do get into that. Uh, I do think there's a fine line for the senators to walk because we also have one of the things that makes our Constitution unique and original. We have Article 6, Clause 3, which is no religious tests for public office. Uh, but you can talk to somebody about their religion, and especially their religion dictating how they're going to decide cases on the bench um, when they've stated it without imposing a religious test. What impact will Justice Katanji Brown Jackson have on this court, if not in the short term, then in the long term? It's a really good question. I I think she's going to be writing a lot of dissents um, in the short term, hopefully writing dissents, given that we don't want her to be in this ultra uh, part of this ultra conservative majority. And I don't expect her to, to be when it comes to these cases. Um, she, her record on religion and the law is relatively thin. Um, but she did give some heartening answers in, in her confirmation hearing. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think overall the problem that we face with this Supreme court, and this is the Supreme court is the problem here. And it requires a solution. And this is something I talk about pretty extensively in American Crusade. We need a fix to the Supreme Court. It has already been packed. It has been packed with crusaders. It has been packed with ideologues. that They were put on the bench to make these decisions. And if we do not turn around and fix that, um, we are not going to see any real progressive change in this country for a very long time. And substituting one justice onto the court is not going to fix that. So let's talk about that. The, if the title of your book is American Crusade, because the Supreme Court includes all these crusaders, religious mm-hmm. crusaders, like it, it doesn't sound like the word crusade doesn't have a natural pushback to it. Like how do you defeat a crusade? What is the way we can actually fight back against the Supreme Court? Because you're right, just trying to replace one of these justices with a lifetime appointment, it's not just a long game. I mean, it's it you can't uh, predict what's going to happen. You can't strategize based around that. So what would be the right fix? Is it term limits? Is it something else? What is it? It's a really good question. Uh, and the first thing I think we need to do is set our expectations here. Because the one thing that I have noticed, even though I feel like I have been screaming about this problem for, for years um, and writing about it, writing this book for a while, is that people now, now that Roe versus Wade has fallen and reproductive freedom is a memory, now that the separation of state and church is openly under attack from the high court and religious freedom threatened as a result, now people are saying, okay, well, what do we do? We need a, we need a fix. We need a fix right now. And the first thing everybody needs to understand is there is no quick fix to what has happened. There, there just, there really isn't. The, the other side built power and these, these influential and wealthy systems and networks and structures for decades. And now they are reaping the fruits of that, that very hard work. And we are not going to turn around and figure out a quick, easy solution to undoing all of that. 
uh, it's, it's going to take a lot of time and effort on our part. I like to tell people that voting is literally the least you can do in this situation, and, and it is. Um, so one is set your expectations because uh, this is a long fight ahead. Um, the, big thing, the biggest thing that we could do to take a chunk out of their victory would be to expand the Supreme Court, to rebalance the court that has been packed, the seats that were stolen, uh, you know, I mean, I've noticed that you don't actually say expand the court very much on social media or anywhere else. You use different terminology. Well, because I, you know, a lot of people, the other side likes to paint it as though you know we are trying to suggest that packing the court is the solution, but the court has already been packed. Right? That already mm-hmm. happened. I mean, they they stole a seat. They jammed another justice in it at the very end of. Uh, Trump's term when 50 people had already voted in the election. They put another guy in over credible accusations of sexual assault and no investigation into those, right? They deliberately packed the Supreme Court, right? And like when we talk about changing the size of the Supreme Court and how that's some, um, you know, political taboo, Mitch McConnell changed the size of the Supreme Court when it suited him politically. He knocked it down to eight for more than a year, because it suited him. And then when it was when his party was back in full power, they added that person back onto the court. Right? I mean, this happens all the time. And in fact, our system of checks and balances was designed to check one of the three branches when it gets out of control. And the way that the executive, the president, and the legislative Congress check our Supreme Court is by expanding it. Changing the number of seats when they, when the court gets out of control and gets political, I mean historically that is what the other branches have done. They have expanded or threatened to expand the Supreme Court to rebalance a court that is radical and out of control, uh, and and as this one is drunk on power. And what would it take at this point? I mean, uh, is that just a matter of getting a getting rid of the filibuster, getting a fiftieth vote for? getting rid of the filibuster by Democrats in the Senate? Is it more to it than that? Well, I mean, this is why I tell people that voting is literally the least you can do. I mean, it, we have to convince, first of all, um, the people that this is this is the right thing to do. And, you know, again, there's this hesitation because we view the Supreme Court as, I said, you know, the arbiters of truth and justice, and they are not. Right. Like it said, the words carved on the front of that building are equal justice under law. And that is not what this court is about. Uh, This court is about privileging Christians under the law. That that is what that is what this crusade is about. That is what this court has been doing. Um, So, I mean, I think we have to we have to have this public conversation and then convince our Congress that this is the right thing to do. And it's not just expanding the court generally. Right. It's actually rebalancing the court and undoing all of the damage the, that was done by Leonard Leone and Mitch McConnell when they packed the court already. So it's not rebuttal, just expanding it. The rebuttal I sometimes hear from conservatives is, or even Democrats, is sure we can add four seats to the Supreme Court theoretically if we had that power, but Republicans are just going to add more seats when they're back in power. Yeah, well, I mean, a couple of couple responses to that. One, the Republicans, again, already did that, right? That, that has already happened, right? They, they already packed the court, right? They didn't add seats. They stole seats to pack the court to put their people on it. So in the tit-for-tat situation, the tit has already happened. Are we going to tat or not? Mm. 
Um, are we going to unilaterally <laughs> disarm and say, okay, you can do it. We're not going to. Um, and again, the, the, the second response is, if you are an institutionalist who cares about the institution, this is the way our system was designed, right? Our system of checks and balances is meant to check an out-of-control branch, and that is what is happening right now. The institutionalist response would be to expand the court. A third response is, okay, so what? If the court is already politicized and political, and under the we don't want to go to this tit-for-tat thing, it's we're, we're operating as though it is not a political body. And if that makes it clear to the public that it is, fine, I'm okay with that. And the fourth would be, okay, so what? Let's have 51 people on that Supreme Court. Then every one of those votes is diluted. Every one of those people is less powerful. You know, for my entire legal career, uh, for really most of our lifetimes, you know, people have been litigating cases before the Supreme Court by targeting one justice. You know, the, the swing justice on the court, you know, first it was Sandra Day O'Connor, then it was Kennedy. Now people think it's Roberts. It's really not. Right. And that's crazy. They make they gear their arguments toward just what that one person wants to hear. Exactly. And what it's they crazy think, what they think. That and right now it's it's even point. We, we know exactly how every one of these cases is going to come out now. Right. There, there's no guesswork involved. I mean, you can, if you want to make money, bet on Christians winning, right? I mean, that, that, this is, it's so very clear what's happening. So to me, fine, dilute their power. I don't care. I don't care if there's, there's no reason to have just nine on the Supreme Court. Um, there's no reason that we shouldn't dilute their power up and make it harder to guess which way they're going to come out on any given case. Um, so I, 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 I don't find any of those objections um, worthwhile. I, I get it, but I think they all are rooted in the myth that the, the court is apolitical and is an arbiter of truth and justice, and it is just simply neither of those things. Um, in your first book, The Founding Myth, you spent all this time talking about the threat of Christian nationalism. And two things I've seen happen. Um, I'm, I will totally give you 100% of the credit for this. Um, one is that I see Congress uh, politicians actively describing that threat, people like Jared Huffman. They are pointing out the damage Christian nationalism can do. I've seen Alex Wagner talk about it on her show, politicians talking about it on the House floor. That's important. They're calling this out for what it is. But the other side of that is I've also seen some Republicans embrace that term as like, hell yeah, I'm a Christian nationalist. We would be better off that way. Um, I'm kind of curious if uh, why you think conservatives are now embracing this, why they see this as a good strategy. And like, does what does that tell you about your book? Like, did you achieve whatever goal you wanted with that to bring it to people's consciousness? Or is this like the monkey's paw curling in? Like, <laughs> yes, now everyone knows what it is. And, and now what? Yeah, I mean, it's really been um, fascinating to watch the country wake up to the threat that Christian nationalism poses to our democracy. You know, I, I remember, um, right when the founding myth came out, I was at the religion news writers association conference in Las Vegas. Uh, and I said to a room of probably like 250 religion reporters, I said that Christian nationalism is an existential threat to a government of the people for the people and by the people. And I, something along the lines of, you know, I think it's the biggest threat to our country right now. And 
you know, this is a room full of reporters who, who focus on this issue. Um, I was on a panel with Jack Jenkins and Catherine Stewart. Um, it, you know, in You'd think so. You would think they would embrace everything yeah. you're saying because they they are the ones on the front lines. They write about this stuff. Yeah, um, and and I you know I, I remember just the looks of skepticism. Uh, and I was actually Jack Jenkins was actually and I were chatting on Twitter about this a while back, and he was like, "Yep, you can see my my skeptical eyebrow raise as you said that, Andrew." Uh, something along those lines. But you know, it it is. So in one in one respect, it's really rewarding to see the country wake up to this threat that I that I've been talking about for so long, um, and and to answer the second part of that question, am I surprised that they're adopting this label? Um, you know, and, it's like and they're wearing it as a badge of honor. Proudly, You're damn yeah. right, I'm a Christian nationalist. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not. Um, it's a pretty common conservative tactic to to try to adopt the name, right? Like think of deplorables, right? Like the, this sure. is this is sure. common for them to do. Um, but in this case, I, I don't think they realize that it's not going to play quite as well as they think. Um, the phrase Christian nationalism is inherently alarming to a lot of the country. Um, and there, I, I went over some of the data for this in the original book, The Founding Myth. So, you know, I, I think that's going to that's going to backfire against them. And, you know, this all ties into the new book too, American Crusade, because, you know, why are we seeing this crusade as something that I that I struggled to really communicate to the reader in an inaccessible way? And this is happening at, largely as a backlash against equality realized. Right? Christianity was once able to discriminate on the basis of race, and now that is largely unthinkable. Christianity was once able to legally subjugate half the population. Christianity was once able to legally discriminate against LGBTQ people, but now isn't in most places. Um, And as more people realize the rights due to them by virtue of being human, the sphere of religious imposition is shrinking. And the crusade seeks to reclaim this lost ground, right? And you you can see this, you know, uh, like a couple of, let me give you three just quick examples. Obamacare. Right, this expanded mm-hmm. equality by recognizing the reproductive rights of Americans. And, and Hobby Lobby's conservative white Christian owners fought against that expansion of rights under the guise of religious freedom. Um, the Obergefell. We don't want to pay. We don't want to pay for contraception, birth control, abortion care for our employees. And because we're a Christian company, we should have the right to reject all that. Yes, and and the, the Supreme Court okayed that. I've got a whole chapter about why that is absolute garbage. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, you know, him and I, a good chunk of it's based on an article I wrote for you right in the wake of that decision back in <laughs> 2014. Um, you know, then the Obergefell decision, right? Expanded equality by recognizing the rights yeah. of LGBTQ citizens to equal marriage. And then you have Masterpiece Cake Shops, conservative white Christian owner, and then this host of other businesses fighting that expansion by claiming religious freedom. And then you can go back even farther. Go back to Brown versus Board of Education. One of the good decisions out of the Supreme Court, the kind of marking the beginning of the era of that, that progressive court, the Warren Court, that actually gave the Supreme Court this reputation that, that the ultra-conservative bloc is now abusing. Right? It expanded equality by recognizing the rights of black Americans to equal access to public education. And in the name of religious freedom... Christians push for school choice and vouchers and segregation academies, right? So conservative white Christian Americans facing equality are just continually acting like martyrs suffering for their faith. They feel these expansions of rights violate their rights. 
but but parody is not oppression and and that all comes back to the crusade that is why they are trying to weaponize religious freedom to get back to that point in time and and that is why so many of these same people are turning to Christian nationalism as well. It's all the same swirl and same feedback loop. If the goal of the founding myth was to make people aware of Christian nationalism and the threat it posed, what to you is the goal of American crusade? What do you hope readers take away from it? And especially, I mean, it's one thing if they're just not paying attention to the Supreme court for whatever reason, but even for people who have seen what the court has done, who are alarmed by the overturning of Roe, what are you hoping they take away from your book? I want people to understand what is happening with religion and the law with our Supreme Court right now. I I do think American Crusade is like nothing people have ever read because it's it's not a law book. It's exposing an attempt to warp our law. It shows that these Supreme Court justices are eager and ready to take these cases. They want to hear these cases, right? The Supreme Court typically gets to reject like 99% of the cases that come its way, but it decides so many of the religious freedom cases that come its way in favor of conservative Christian Christians. And the simple fact is that this Supreme Court wants to decide these cases. And this is all, I mean, they advertised this a decade ago when they called for this crusade. And the crusaders, the groups that are out there who are doing the work to tear down the separation of church and state, right, who are uh, the opposite of the Americans United and the American Atheists and the American Humanist Association, right, who are doing that crusading work uh, are teeing these cases up for the Supreme Court. So, you know, I, I tell the reader what happened in each of those cases, not only because I actually lived many of those cases, and I followed them closely. I mean, this has been my whole career. I litigated some of these cases. I briefed others. You know, I've been on the front lines defending our country from this assault. So I I know what happened each step of the way. And I think I'm, I'm one of the only people who has sat through so much of this and seen how radical the change has been from the front lines that I wanted to share that with everybody in terms that they could understand, right? This, this is not a book that's written for lawyers. It's written for anybody to pick up and realize, oh, whoa, I cannot believe this is happening right now. I don't have the title in front of me, but I know you are also writing or co-writing a book for lawyers Mm -hmm. about church state separation. What is the focus of that uh, book because it's written for experts in this field. What are you telling them? So that's written for burgeoning experts in the field. This is a textbook mm. this, that is written for law students. So it's Religion and the Law, and I'm co-editing this with Professor Leslie Griffin, who's a brilliant professor. Uh, it's called Religion and the Law. It's the, it's the fifth edition. Uh, it just released. I would not, <laughs> unless you are a law student, or if you're a law <laughs> professor, I would encourage you to assign it to your students. But otherwise... Um, it really is, you know, it's it's a text for academics, for students to prepare uh, for these cases. Um, is there anything know, I, specific in that particular book you're trying to really get across to those burgeoning lawyers, though, that, that maybe might be over the heads of the lay reader? Yes. I mean, I, you know, one of the things I really am trying to do is to get them to start 
questioning some of the things we've even been talking about uh, on this podcast. Um, and, you know, so the way a law book works, a law textbook works is you um, write a little intro to a chapter that, and the chapter kind of hits a specific subject matter. And then you have the cases, the opinions that the courts have written um, and they're usually edited down to focus on those the specific points you're trying to address. And then you have all these discussion questions at the end where you really try to get the students thinking about all the different ways this particular opinion that they just read applies to other cases um, and, and get them to question things that have been written in it. And I, I had a lot of fun writing those discuss, <laughs> discussion questions. It was, it was a whole lot of fun. You know I mean? I think the point, point I think, pointing out inaccuracies in the opinions, yeah, like <laughs> I did, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I did. Yeah. But you know, I, I mean, this is, and this is the thing that I really thought was interesting when I was writing American crusade is that religious freedom questions are not hard, but they're like these legal questions of religious freedom. They're not always simple, and sometimes they can be complicated, but really more often they're just emotionally fraught, especially if they involve children. But in the push to weaponize religious freedom during this crusade, the crusaders have misled and confounded so much of the country about where we draw the lines for this founding American principle of religious freedom. And and the, the thing that I try to make clear very early on, and it's the framework that I use for the rest of the book to describe these cases, is that while religious freedom cases may not raise simple questions, they really aren't that hard. They really, really aren't. And I mean, basically, you can you can answer almost all the the hard questions in these cases by drawing three pretty simple lines. Well, the book that is for most readers is called American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. If it's anything like the founding myth, I have no doubt people are really going to enjoy it. And the book is out when? The 27th of September. Uh, please go pre-order. And if anybody wants a signed copy, uh, if you go to bit.ly slash signed AC, uh, S-I-G-N-E-D-A-C. You can get a signed copy from my favorite local bookstore, uh, Room of One's Own. Excellent. Thank you so much, Andrew. Keep up the good work, and I can't wait to hear the feedback on the new book. Thank you, my friend. Have a good one.